The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Coming to the close of this seventh of Romans and standing on the mountaintop that looks out upon the glory of the eighth chapter, I must testify to my own soul's growth as a result of the scores of hours, the hundreds of hours I have spent in contemplating this great struggle of Romans 7. Now I know that the commentators are wrong, that I, for years, was wrong in following them, that this struggle is not the warfare between Saul and Paul, which gives to the flesh some shade of excuse for its shortcomings. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Triumph of the Believer. Have you ever heard someone excuse their sin by saying, I wasn't really myself when I did that? Such an attitude is dangerous because it short circuits the spiritual power of sincere confession and repentance. We must learn to stop making excuses and blaming others for our sin and honestly admit to God the totality of our sin and our responsibility for it. How does truthful, earnest repentance lead to spiritual triumph for the Christian? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verse 25. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Triumph of the Believer. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou art all-sufficient, and we pray thee to meet our every need in this hour. Be with those in pain and sorrow, and comfort the sick and the dying. Fill the hearts of those that mourn with thy consolation, and arouse the indifferent and the careless to an urgent sense of their peril, and use the word in this hour to give triumph to all who have put their trust in Christ. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We come today to the last verse in the seventh chapter of Romans, Romans 7.25. So then, I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, whatever this text means, you may be sure that you're wrong if you think that there's the slightest encouragement to sin to be found in it, or if you think that the Holy Spirit has grown a bit careless and has let down the bars here to make it a little easier for you. This text does not mean that Saul is allowed periods of having his own way, and that he can come back and hear a smug and pious Paul say, 
It wasn't Paul that did it, it was Saul. Any attitude that condones sin is a Satan-taught attitude. Any thought that will take the punch out of true repentance is something that has risen out of the flesh and must be resisted. In fact, any such thought is in itself a sin far worse than the outward act it seeks to protect. We read in Galatians 5:19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and so on. Now taking these in the order in which God has given them to us and connecting them with the text that we are studying, we have the following. Suppose that the Christian does fall into one of these sins and goes all the way to the act of adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, or any of the other sins in the list. Such an act is an outbreak of the flesh which came to maturity because the Christian did not avail himself of the power which God had provided and because he did not enter into the way of escape which God had made so that he would be able to overcome the temptation, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Such an act is a sin of the flesh. It is a terrible thing. And the Christian must fly to the Lord for the application of the cleansing principles of the word of God as set forth in God's revelation. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if at any time in the course of our thinking about the sin, either while knowing the remorse that should lead to true repentance or during that repentance or during the confession of the sin, or during our thoughts of retrospect, which we may have about it, if I say at any time in any of this sequence, we allow the thought to come that we weren't fully responsible because we have the Adamic nature within us, we have committed a spiritual sin far greater than the fleshly act which set our thinking in motion. David's great psalm of the universe ends with a remarkable pair of verses which cover this thought. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This is Psalm 19. Now let us ask ourselves what a presumptuous sin is. The answer must be found in the reading of the whole of the word of God and in the acceptance of its doctrine of the difference between a fleshly sin and a spiritual sin. It should be noted, first of all, that we are not separating sins into any classification such as venial sins and mortal sins. There is no such thing as a mortal sin for a believer in Christ, if we understand mortal in the sense of that which could cause him to lose his eternal life. There is a sin unto death, but it is unto physical death as we read in 1 John 5, 16 and 17. It is a sin which can cause the Lord to intervene in the life of a Christian, make him physically weak and sickly, and finally bring about the death of his body, taking him home to heaven in a state that is out of fellowship. This is described in the passage which tells us the meaning of the communion service and says of those who have taken it in an unworthy manner, as we read in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. For this cause, many of you are weak and sickly, and many sleep, or as the revision has it, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Since the Lord Jesus Christ took the guilt of all of our sins in his death, there can be no other sin that is spiritually mortal. 
for that would mean that his death was not sufficient to cover all sin. To return then to the difference between a fleshly sin and a presumptuous sin. The disobedience of Adam and Eve in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fleshly sin, a deliberate act of disobedience. For Adam to seek to cast some of the blame back on God by saying, the woman thou gavest me, was a spiritual sin of high presumption. David's prayer was answered and he was kept from the sin of presumption in the matter of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. These acts were horrible outbreaks of fleshly sin. But when Nathan came to him in accusation, he did not seek to mitigate his evil, but immediately said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now in the matter of the chapter which we have been studying, there is a great pitfall into which many Christians have fallen. The flesh is always with us, and full provision has been made by God for its overcoming by watchfulness and prayer, and appropriation of the power provided for triumph. Any time the means which God has given to us are not used, and as a result there is an outbreak of the flesh, there must never be the slightest thought of condoning the outbreak on the ground that old Saul has surged to the forefront. It would be a fleshly sin to lie. It would be a spiritual sin to call it a white lie. It would be a fleshly sin to steal. It would be a spiritual sin to condone it on the ground that the person you stole from would not miss it. It would be a fleshly sin to gossip. It would be a spiritual sin to deny that it was gossip and call it by a lesser name. It would be a fleshly sin to overeat. It would be a spiritual sin to laugh about it and say that there was no pleasanter way of going to heaven. We can find many more examples in the Bible. It was a fleshly sin for the brothers of Dinah to be outraged at Shechem's conduct toward her. It was a spiritual sin to use the covenant sign of circumcision as a means of luring the men of the town to their death. It was a fleshly sin that some of the Jews in the days of Christ should have been greedy after money to the point of withholding full care of their own parents. It was a spiritual sin to say that they could not spend the money on their parents because it was earmarked for the Lord's service, as Jesus pointed out in Mark 7. And whenever I am setting forth a series of sins, I am always conscious that my listeners will await one that touches them sitting in smug self-satisfaction as long as they are not touched. I will therefore add that it is a fleshly sin to do the thing which you know that you do, but which I have not mentioned, and it's a spiritual sin to be contented because the sin is not brought to light and mentioned. Having established then what our text does not teach, let us look at its positive teaching. I of myself serve the law of God with my mind. That is to say that the yielded believer who knows his position joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, sets the course of his life towards the will of God. He is firmly determined that he wants to do the will of God. He steadfastly sets his hand to do the work of God and his feet to walk in the path of God's will. He surrenders his own will to the will of God. Thus it is that the true child of God is able to accomplish many things for the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things are accepted by the Lord even though they are not perfect in themselves. It is at this point that the operation of grace in our lives maintains us in our activities for God. We are surrendered to him, and we determine to do his will. We act, and the action is not perfect. But the perfect God looks at that action through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are accepted in the beloved Savior.
There are two verses in the Gospels which are in seeming contradiction to each other, but which can be understood in the light of this truth. We as disciples are told through the first disciples that when we have done our utmost and our best, we should nevertheless say, at the best, we are unprofitable servants. Now, if we are unprofitable servants at the best, what are we at our worst? The answer to that should bring us very low before our Lord. But the Lord told us through his disciples that the day would come when he would be able to say to many of his disciples, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Many times I have pondered the relationship of these two verses. How would the Lord be able to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, to one who, at the best, was an unprofitable servant? And then one day an incident took place in my home which gave me the perfect answer to this seeming dilemma. In order to set forth the incident, I must explain one of my methods of work. All magazines and papers that come to my desk are placed in a certain spot, waiting the time of the month at which the deadline approaches for the next issue of our monthly magazine of Bible study. Then I skim through them very rapidly, hour after hour, taking the items that I wish to use for the column of current news, A Window on the World, and clipping some items to be filed for future reference. The papers and magazines which have been gone over are dropped in a pile on the floor to be carried out as waste paper. One day, a good many years ago, I was in the midst of this procedure when my daughter, then about five years old, came in and asked me what I was doing. I told her that I was doing editorial work, and she asked me if she could help me. There was such an earnest look on her little face that I smiled at her and then wrote a little note which I told her to take to her mother. The note read, Please deliver to the bearer the small pair of unpointed scissors. A few moments later, she came back into my study, carrying the scissors in her hand. I then turned over to her the pile of papers and magazines with which I was finished and told her she might cut clippings from them. She was very pleased and sat down to her task with great zest. A long time passed, perhaps half an hour, and there had been no sign of fatigue with what she was doing and no word of interruption. I had become engrossed in my work to the point of forgetting her presence. Suddenly I turned and looked down at her and found that she had taken the latest copy of the National Geographic magazine from the edge of my desk and was happily engaged in cutting it to pieces. I had two courses of action before me. If I had cried out at her and punished her, she would never have understood, for in her heart she would undoubtedly have answered if anyone had asked her what she was doing, that she was helping Daddy. Now there was no doubt of the fact that at the best, she was an unprofitable servant, so far as any editorial help was concerned. I gently took the magazine from her, told her the equivalent of, well done, thou good and faithful servant, kissed her and said, now you go and help mother for a while. Now it's surely thus that the Lord deals with us, only he never sends us away at all. How could it be possible that we could be other than unprofitable to him? For we have within us the law of sin and death. We have within us the flesh. When we would do perfect, unmixed good, we find that there is evil within us. The seepage of this evil leaves its traces in every action of our lives, in every thought of our hearts. This must not lessen in any way our full determination to delight in the law of God after the inward man. This must not deter us in any way from an ever-increasing determination to forget the things that are behind, to reach forward to the goal that lies before us and to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You tell me that you can understand this, 
but that you cannot understand the last half of the text. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now we have seen that this cannot mean any yieldedness to lawlessness. There is no comfort for the antinomian here. We repudiate with horror any suggestion of lessening the demands of holiness, which are put upon us by the Holy Spirit of the thrice holy God. But perhaps I can once more show this truth by an example taken from the life of the home. For many years we had living with us a dearly beloved grandmother. She lovingly devoted herself to the care and education of our children and sat with them regularly many hours a day, teaching them their daily lessons. With advancing years, she became afflicted with Parkinson's disease, of which the most common symptom is the trembling of the hand. She would go to the blackboard to write down the lesson for one of the younger children. She would grasp the chalk, and you could see it trembling, as the possession of any object seemed to intensify the shaking of the hand. When she finally pressed the chalk to the blackboard and began to set down the column of figures, every inch of each stroke was marked by the waving oscillations of her condition. There were the figures, and it was possible to read them and to know exactly what she meant. The figures in her mind were straight and true, but the figures which she drew on the blackboard were deformed with the shaking of her palsy. With her mind, she drew the true Arabic numerals according to the best copybook pattern. But with her palsied flesh, she drew trembling numbers on the blackboard. So it was with everything that Paul did. So it is that everything we do today. The nature of the flesh that is within us is like the palsy. The mind will determine straight figures, but the hand will be totally unable to execute what the mind desires. That which the palsied hand does, the renewed mind does not want to do but the hand does what the mind hates. So then it is not the mind that is doing it, but palsy that dwells in the hand. The mind can will that which is perfect, but the hand cannot do it. For the hand does not the good which the mind desires, and how to perform what the mind wishes to do, the hand finds not. Now if the hand does that which the mind would not do, it is no more the mind that is doing it, but the palsy that dwells in the hand. For the mind delights in straight figures, but there is another law working in the members, warring against the law of the mind and bringing every action into captivity to the law of the palsy which is in the hand. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this palsy? Thank God full deliverance will come with the return of the Lord when we shall see him and be like him, and we shall then know perfect, unmixed good. So then with our mind we yield to the Lord and draw straight figures though the palsy of our old Adam makes them come out shaky on the board of actions. But there is certainly no condemnation from God for the trembling figures that are drawn for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here is the point at which grace enters and sees the motive of the yielded heart. All that follows in the opening verses of the eighth chapter of Romans will make this more clear and positive. Holiness is possible in the life and triumph is to be the normal role of the spiritually yielded Christian. The fact that the figures will tremble does not affect in any wise the triumph of the believer in doing those things which are good and acceptable in his sight. I wish, oh, how I wish, that I could preach the perfect sermon in the perfect power of the Holy Spirit. But I know that I can't because it passes through my mind and my vocal cords. But God accepts it. 
even when trembling lay, I set forth that which might not be according to his whole pattern. But the Lord never condemns because he sees the heart. When with our mind we serve the law of God, we are drawing the straight stroke which he sees and recognizes. The stroke as it comes out on the blackboard will have flaws of two kinds. First, there will be those which, because of the living presence of indwelling sin, no watchfulness can avoid, no prayerfulness can prevent, no faith can turn aside. Then there will be flaws which greater faith and surrender might have avoided or lessened. Our best action or thought will be marred enough to show that it was not done by the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we had touched it and that it was therefore less than perfect. But there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus and the spiritual sacrifices which we as a holy priesthood offer up to our God are acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. Coming to the close of this seventh of Romans and standing on the mountain top that looks out upon the glory of the eighth chapter, I must testify to my own soul's growth as a result of the scores of hours, the hundreds of hours I have spent in contemplating this great struggle of Romans 7. Now I know that the commentators are wrong, that I, for years, was wrong in following them, that this struggle is not the warfare between Saul and Paul, which gives to the flesh some shade of excuse for its shortcomings. To look upon this chapter as a struggle which led up to Paul's yieldedness to be crucified with Christ is to miss the point. Paul died with Christ back in the sixth of Romans. It was then that he could say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But then the crucified Paul discovered that sin was still present with him, even after this crucifixion death. Then he learned the even greater heights which were possible stretched out his palsied hand to make the wavering strokes which his mind wanted to be straight and gloried in the fact that the Lord saw nothing but straight strokes since he is all grace, abounding and much more abounding. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this word to each heart. If there are any who have not been born again, give them restlessness until they come to rest in Christ. If there are any who are using thy word as an excuse for low-level living, show them, O oh God, the sinfulness of their position and bring them back to the cross where thou canst level us as we should be level. And upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And to thee be the glory through the Lord Jesus Christ, now, till he come and forever. Amen.
God has made it possible for every believer to live in true holiness and righteousness. A life of triumph should be the normal experience of the Christian who is spiritually yielded to the Lord. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Triumph of the Believer. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Triumph of the Believer, or simply request message number R7-18. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled Temptation and How to Meet It. Temptation comes to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil and pulls us away from God towards sin and disobedience. How can we effectively fight against its powerful influence? This free booklet traces the history of temptation, identifies its various sources and manifestations, and outlines the biblical strategies for effectively dealing with temptation in whatever form it takes. Ask for your free copy of Temptation and How to Meet It when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.